Real variety for your workday. listening to the Fat Doctor podcast. If you're looking for something a little bit different to all the noise that's being churned out to the airways nowadays, then you're in the right place. We're going to be talking all about the modern day religion that is healthism and how it relates to weight stigma. So all you need to do is sit back, relax and pay attention. Welcome back to episode two. I'm so glad you're here, that you're joining me. In the last episode, I introduced you to the laws of healthism. And today I wanted to focus in on health as a concept. Who better to speak to than my friend Emma Green, who has a PhD in health psychology. She and I are going to try to define health, which isn't as easy as it sounds, by the way, and then allow the conversation to flow from there. Emma is a writer, editor and freelance researcher Informed by her PhD in health psychology and personal training certification, Emma's work aims to challenge assumptions in the health and fitness space by sharing science and generating constructive conversations. She uses her years of academic study to critically analyse the literature surrounding health and weight, and she also has a specialist interest in eating disorders. So stay tuned, folks. You don't want to miss a thing. So with me, it's been kind of always like both like kind of professional and also kind of personal um and on the kind of personal note I had an eating disorder in my teenage years and then really through the recovery of that realized oh wow like uh, not everyone like clearly has an eating disorder but a lot of people have a really unhealthy relationship with food exercise and their bodies and I realized actually it's quite difficult to recover into a world that is actually very disordered <laughs> largely um and and that kind of you know piqued my interest I think in maybe different ways of thinking about kind of health and and um yeah and kind of illness and what what we kind of um are presented with and then I guess on on the more kind of professional level and I studied um psychology at my undergrad level and was particularly interested in health psychology which is kind of I mean a lot of it is like behavior change stuff inverted commas more broadly it's kind of the the study of how we kind of think and feel about both you know both physical health and kind of mental health um and then kind of following that I did a master's in health psychology enjoyed that and then PhD in health psychology as well um and I think particularly with my PhD I think with, with when you do something in real depth you have to literally justify everything you're doing you know you have to justify your your research methods you have to be looking at what researchers have done before and kind of the idea is with a PhD essentially you're trying to fill a gap in the literature but kind of through that process you're doing a lot of critical thinking really and I found that actually that enable me to think more critically about things outside of my PhD. My PhD was focused on young people with diabetes. This kind of critical thinking, I think, expanded beyond that. And I was able to look at kind of, you know, studies in literature and think, actually, wait, wait a minute. Is there a bit more to this kind of health idea? You know, my my master's particularly was very, very weight centric. Um, I had lecturers, you know, specialising in, you know, O words. Um, I did it at UCL. They have a, I believe they still do, a centre dedicated to that. And it made me think, mm, actually, is what I've, we've been told about kind of health, um, is that is that right? Is there a bit more to it? And found actually, yeah, there is. <laughs> um, you know, learned about the social determinants of health and not only the fact that they existed, right? I mean, it's ridiculous that, you know, didn't even know they, you know, were a thing, right, until so late on. Um, but also how much they contribute to, to health as well. And then came across ideas like intuitive eating, which I think is a, a useful framework. Um, well, that's primarily about people's relationship with food. It goes a bit more broadly and that provides a kind of one possible alternative to a sort of mainstream diet-focused approach. I definitely sat on the fence for quite a while when I was confronted with ideas that <laughs> conflicted with what I believed. Um, and also in that time as well, I trained as a personal trainer, which is very, very weight-centric, right? You're essentially told this is how you get people to lose weight, you know, get them to do this, get them to eat this, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I did, unfortunately, when I was qualified as a personal trainer, did a lot of, did a lot of fence-sitting, but 
thankfully I'm I'm now off the fence but but yeah I do have to be be very honest about that it wasn't that I suddenly saw this stuff and saw the light came over and and jumped in with with uh, both feet it did take some uh do take some time <laughs> and unlearning I think as much as learning unlearning as much as learning is something that a lot of us can relate to I think there are some things that we learn to take for granted right from the very beginning of our childhoods for example the world is round Gravity keeps us tethered to the ground. And being healthy depends on a number of factors, including weight, nutrition and exercise. Now, the first couple of things have been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, right? We know that the world is round. We know that gravity keeps us tethered to the ground. There is scientific, conclusive proof of both. But when it comes to health, it becomes clear that the evidence is very different to what we take for granted. So in order to learn, we first have to do a lot of unlearning. And that's what I'm asking everyone to do today. For the next 45 minutes or so, just forget pretty much everything you have ever learned about health and listen to what Emma is saying. I started by asking her as an expert to define health. I mean, it's definitely something that researchers can't agree on. Um, I think the last look was there are over 50 definitions of health in the literature. (laughs) So, um, I mean, the the one that is thrown around the most is the World Health Organization um, definition of health, Um, which I think people are probably familiar with. I don't know it exactly off by heart, but it's this idea of the state of, I think, social, mental and physical health, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity, I think it is. Um, I used to actually be a big fan of that definition. I thought, yep, that sounds great. More recently, I've um, (laughs) not become such a fan of it because it firstly defines health as a state, right? So presumably, if you don't meet that state, you're unhealthy. Well, by that definition, if, if it includes this social, you know, mental, physical health, what percentage of the population are actually going to meet that definition? 1% maybe? And then I think, actually, that is it helpful if we're defining 99% of the world's population or whatever it is, you know, very, uh, as unhealthy? Probably not. Um, and I think, in a way, with, with health, perhaps rather than trying to define it, it's maybe more helpful to think about it in a more kind of conceptual way. And one of the frameworks I'm a big fan of that I drew on in my um, PhD, actually, is something called salutogenesis. Um Big fancy word, um, unsurprisingly coined by sociologists who uh, love <laughs> love big fancy words. Um, it was coined by a sociologist called Antonovsky. Um, and the idea of this is it conceptualizes health on a kind of a spectrum. So rather than saying it's something you have or you don't, you're healthy or unhealthy, it's actually kind of spectrum from kind of, you know, everything sucks to everything's great, right? Um, and, and is this, again, this multidimensional, so we're not just talking about physical health here, although that tends to get uh, most of the airtime in conversations about health. And the idea with, with this model is it, there's this idea of the sense of coherence, which is this um, has three three elements to it. Um, and the and three elements are manageability, which is the idea that you have the resources within yourself, but also within your environment to manage the stuff that life throws at you, right? And that's where stuff like social determinants of health fit in, right? Clearly, if you you know, are marginalised, you will be lacking resources in a certain area. Equally, if you've got loads of privilege, you'll have loads of resources, right? There's meaningfulness, um, which is your ability really to derive kind of meaning and pleasure and things in life. So engaging in, you know, activities that you enjoy, hobbies, you know, all, all those kinds of things. That's more the kind of emotional kind of well-being stuff. Um, and then uh, the kind of the, the third element um, is... Uh, this comprehensibility, which is largely more sort of cognitive idea, being able to sort of make sense of of the world around you. Um, And the idea was, if you've got all three of these, you have this high sense of coherence, right? And he believed that all, all of these three actually were, um, were important to address. Um, And I, I like that idea, because I think it's, it's holistic in terms of it considers these different elements. It's not individualistic, right? It's not putting all the onus on the individual. But it's also, although it's universal, it's also going to differ on the individual, right? Everyone has different resources at their disposal. And also that can change, right? If you, you know, um, 
lose your job, right? Clearly, you then will lose resources associated with that, right? Equally, if you, um, you know, develop a mental health condition, that is going to affect one of those things. So I like the fact that it's kind of dynamic. And I think it also gives us a useful framework to potentially improve health as well. Because I think when we're looking to define health, often it's so we can measure it, number one, and hopefully improve it as well. One of the reasons that I'm, a, I'm a, a sort of a big fan of it is because it specifically talks about resources. And one of the other ideas of Antonovsky's was like this idea of generalized resistance resources. Big again, big big fancy terms. Um, sociologists love them, but this idea that we, you know, we all have these resources within ourselves, or we don't have them within ourselves and within our environment that we um, can draw upon to help us manage life's demands. And I think that's really important because when we're talking about improving health, that's really the stuff that can make a big difference, right? You know, we're told by the media um, that actually, you know, it's just, oh, eat, eat these foods, move your body, perfect health. And that's just, that's not the reality, right? And we've seen that with COVID, right? I mean, I think it's a good example of that, right? We know the people that are most likely to get COVID and also unfortunately be hospitalized or to, to die from COVID are those who have, you know, existing health conditions, you know, existing mental health conditions or are or older. Do you know what I mean? It's not, you know, the people that weren't eating their vegetables and <laughs> moving their bodies. That's not how it has played out at all. Um, so, um, so yeah, that's that's my kind of when I'm talking about kind of defining health. Um, I can't give a definition, but I do like the the framework of salutogenesis. I think that's um, a useful way of of thinking about it. Salutogenesis comes from the Latin word salus, which means health, and the Greek word genesis, which means origin. And you can compare that to the word pathogenesis, which literally translates as the origin of disease. So salutogenesis, I guess literally translates as the origins of health and it is important to understand that there is a huge difference between health and the absence of disease or infirmity. Whether you subscribe to the salutogenic model or not it's really important to think of health as a concept rather than a very simple black and white definition and Aaron Antonovsky whom Emma was talking about, the sort of founder of salutogenesis, developed the salutogenic model from his studies of how people manage stress and stay well. That was his the title of his studies. And he studied the relationship between health, stress and coping in a group of Holocaust survivors. That's where his initial studies were. And he found that I think it was something like 29% of them were coping, that their health was good, that they were managing their stress and they were coping. And he was interested to find out what it was that those 29% were doing that the others were not. How were they coping? How was their health good in spite of all the terrible things they've gone through? Most of us nowadays, many, many years after the Holocaust, believe that exercise and nutrition play a very important role in health. We're less focused on stress and more focused on exercise and nutrition. And, and yes, of course, there is some evidence that they both have some say in the development of disease, and I'm not questioning that. But I was interested to find out what role they play in the concept of health itself. Researchers, again, can't quite agree on exactly the percentages, but the social determinants of health, we think are 80 to 90% of health. Right. So we're talking about less than 20 percent and probably less than 10 percent. Right. Because we've got genetics and, and things like that as well. So actually very little. Certainly there are things we can do to you know lower the risk of disease. We know that, you know, eating lots of fruit and vegetables and things. Yes, that will lower your risk of certain cancers, heart disease, la, 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 la. you know, same as physical activity that's been established. But the thing is, we can't even look at that independently because your ability to do that depends on your level of privilege, right? If you are relying on getting food from a food bank, you may not have the choice of your five a day, right? That's not going to be an option, right? If you're, you know, if you are struggling to, you know, pay your rent, you know, pay your heating bills, all those kinds of things, the idea of eating in this kind of perfect way is just not going to be something you can even get your head around, let alone practically implement into your life. And the same with physical activity, right? Not everyone lives in areas where it's actually safe to engage in, in physical activity, right? You know, they may not be able to afford to go to a gym or a leisure centre or something like that. And there may not be that much green space even available where they live. You know, they might even live in, in a very small house or a small flat where literally they wouldn't be able to move around. So 
I think sometimes when we, we think of health, we think, oh, there's pie chart. So this is the genetics bit, this is the social determinants bit, and this is the kind of behavior bit. And they're all related, right? They're, you know, um, and even genetics, right, is, is, uh, is not an independent thing, right? I mean, there's this field of epigenetics, right, which, again, Latin word meaning upon the genes. And what that means is, yes, you have these, these genes that you're kind of born with, but how they express themselves will depend on your kind of environment, right? So you could have a predisposition for cancer, heart disease, whatever. And if you have a very privileged life, probably those genes will stay switched off, right? And you won't become, you won't necessarily get those. Equally, if you don't, if you, you know, um, experience different types of marginalization and deprivation, actually those genes are going to be activated and you are going to experience the kind of ill health, right? So those, do you know what I mean? It's, it's all kind of related, but, but the actual, yeah, in terms of, you know, eat, eating fruit and veg, as we're, you know, typically told, and, and the exercise is actually such a small percentage. Um, and typically, the, the people that are kind of worrying about that um, <laughs> are the kinds of people that already have huge amounts of privilege in the first place, right? So they're typically people that, that don't really have to be, <laughs> don't have to be concerned about that, right? They're going to be fine, whatever happens. Um you know, and and I think the other thing is, is, is nothing is is instantaneous, right? It's not that you eat an apple today and instantly you're five percent healthier, right? It's everything is over a much a much longer period of time, right? I think you know we, we're taught that almost like you know every single decision we make about food or exercise is, do you know, what I mean it's it's that it's you know it's, it's life or death, right? It's exercise every day or you lose all your fitness, you know, and it it just doesn't work like that things work over a much much bigger period of time so I think that's that's the other element you know whether you eat a vegetable today or not is really not going to matter in the grand scheme of things at all you know but we do see that still continually played on I always think of like food manufacturing right we see a food oh this is a healthy choice it's a smart choice it's a it's a whatever well actually it's just it's just one choice in, in many that I'm going to make and actually I'm in a hugely privileged position if I'm even able to make that as a choice right rather than it being the only available option to me so you may have heard me say before that health is a privilege not an achievement Emma was able to explain this much more eloquently than I ever could but since the evidence suggests as she said that the social determinants of health make up 80 to 90 percent of our overall health we're beginning to see just how misled we have been for most of our lives. Privilege and oppression exist because a small percentage of society, the 1%, as Bernie Sanders always likes to remind us, control the vast majority of the world's resources, finances and power. They will do whatever it takes to hold on to that power. And they know that one of the most effective ways to achieve this is to fool the rest of us into believing that we have a choice. It's why they invented constructs like democracy, the American dream and healthism. You know, when it comes to democracy, let's not delude ourselves into thinking that elections are won because of each individual vote. I'm sorry. The evidence shows that they are won by those who raise the most amount of money for their campaigns. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't vote, by the way, because no matter how small our individual influence may be, it can still make a difference and Folks, this is the really important part. It doesn't usually cause us any harm. So whether the influence is small or big, it doesn't cause harm. So why not do it? And that's not always the case for everyone around the world. There are some people who are killed for the right to vote. Right. But on the whole, in countries like the UK, voting is safe and therefore there is no harm in casting your vote. If you don't do it, you know, you never have the potential to make any change. If you do do it, at least you have some potential, even if it's a very small percentage, you have a chance. But when it comes to exercise and nutrition, things are very different, right? Because there are many times when trying to focus in on exercise and nutrition can cause harm. So this idea of we'll just have a go because what have we got to lose? No, it causes harm. COVID, again, I think is a, is a really, you know, useful demonstration of this, right? I mean, sadly, a lot of the people that who are anti-vax are often these kind of, you know, natural health advocates, right? Who kind of think that by, you know, eating, like say, organic, you know, whatever, or keto or whatever their 
poison of choices and um you know and exercising they can kind of save themselves and you know there have been several instances you know where these people have you know become hospitalized and, and died even though on the surface they would be seen as this kind of picture of health that we're presented with in in the media but actually when it comes to you know a, a pandemic and you know an infectious disease actually that isn't going to save you right yes you know <laughs> there are certain things it might do to decrease your risk you know and you you know support your immune system but actually it doesn't stop you getting it like you say there and actually you know getting a vaccine right is actually you know the best thing that that you can do to you know to um improve your chances of not only getting it but if you do get it to having a more positive outcome so why are the vast majority of us under the impression that diet and exercise play such an important role in our health? Where does this actually come from? There are multiple ways. I think, you know, if we talk about, you know, immediately, I think how we're brought up does the kind of values and, and things that our parents kind of hold about about that, you know, not only in terms of, um, you know, the, the importance of, of health, like my, my mom still always say, oh, you know, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And I profoundly disagree with that because I think that doesn't say great things and if you don't have this perfect state of health or you have nothing worth in your life I disagree you know um but but again that you know feeds into to things like that you know again if you're you know the, the the foods and things that you were able to kind of have have access to and what you were kind of you know told about about food if things like you know chocolate or sweets were seen as like oh it's a it's a treat or it's bad or it's you know whatever the kind of ideas that you were presented with there and you know and also your, your current circumstances right so your current social circle how are they kind of thinking about health do, do, you know is there anyone in your immediate you know friends friends and family who who has um you know a, a health condition you know either a mental or a physical health condition that is also going to kind of play play into your idea of, of health right you know if you know someone that has cancer and they would you know um be seen again as this kind of you know picture perfect version of health right you know exercising and you know eating quote unquote healthily and things and they've got that then that is going to affect your perception of of kind of what what health is and equally your your own kind of experiences as as well right i mean i think you know going going back to my own experience of of kind of having an eating disorder how i think about health is different i acknowledge mental health as playing a much much gr uh, greater part in the pie of, of health right than than kind of physical um and i think had i not had that experience i don't think I would I would still see oh it's like oh you know well mental health yeah but that's more about if you have a have a mental health condition or not whereas actually I think you know well-being is it's so much broader than that yeah and then I think also you know the things we read again you know the mainstream media presents us with a certain picture of health right again continue going on about you know the quote-unquote obesity epidemic right again telling us you know basically bigger bodies are bad this causes this thing and again not having any kind of um, more granular analysis about that right again when is weight stigma talked about in the news? Never, right? We continually, you know, if we're presented with things, it's always, you know, basically, you know, being fat is bad. Well, actually, let, let's dig into that, right? And the trouble is, is again, people writing these articles are journalists, they're not scientists, right? So they've, again, read, read maybe the abstract of a study, if we're lucky, and then they're writing your article and just reinforcing all these ideas that we have, these simplistic ideas about health, right? That health means being thin, eating fruit and vegetables and exercising. And again, social media, particularly in recent years, also plays into that, right? If you look at most kind of accounts that are supposedly health-focused, right? Again, it's mainly thin people, it's mainly able-bodied people, it's mainly white people, it's mainly middle-class people, right? Posting their, you know, whole foods hauls or their what I eat in a day and all this <laughs> kind of stuff, right? Um, again, fitness accounts, similar, right? It's gym pics and fancy activewear. And I, all that plays into how we are how we are perceiving health, right? Again, we're presented with this very narrow definition of health. And if you are continually presented with that and not with an alternative, um, that is going to affect how you how you see health. And, you know, this anti-diet approach, whilst it is, um, you know, growing in, in popularity and, and kind of reaching the mainstream a little bit, it's still very, very niche. And it's not something that typically people are presented with unless they go looking for it, unfortunately, um, which is why most people have this very narrow definition of, of what health is. 
So far, we've been talking a lot about physical health, but what about mental and social health? I argue that both of these should take priority for those invested in improving health outcomes. Because, you know, as I've said often times, it's it's not really possible to have good long-term physical health if you have poor mental and social well-being. Okay, it's really difficult because your mental and social well-being will impact your body, whether it's through epigenetics, whether it's to do with, you know, how you engage with the world around you, whether we follow the salutogenic model or whether we choose to subscribe to a different model. We know that mental and social well-being will ultimately impact your physical health. It also causes a number of physical health diseases. But I also argue it's possible to have good mental and social health, even if your physical well-being is poor. So people who have chronic illnesses, but they're managing them, one could say, okay, well, their physical illness, you know, they're immunosuppressed or, you know, they've had to have a kidney, you know, to be alive. And from then onwards, they go on a whole host of medication that puts them at massive risk of developing all sorts of conditions, infections and dying. And yet their mental and social health is quite good. Plenty of people exist out there. So, just how important is mental and social well-being to health? Hugely important, hugely important, yeah. And again, much, much more than typically is, is given credit for. Because like you say, it controls so much, right? Your, you know, in terms of your, you know, ability to, you know, get out in the world and make, you know, meaningful like connections with with people and things, you know, we hear, you know, luckily a bit more about kind of social well-being and things, but, you know, mental is, is a part of that, right? If you have, you know, a mental health condition, you know, like depression or something and getting out of bed is a struggle, well, clearly being able to, again, do those kinds of things is, is just not going to be accessible, you know, to you. Um, and again, we, we, you know, we often hear about social well-being and stuff as people get older and we hear about isolation and stuff like that. But actually, it's really important for, for people of all ages, absolutely. And, you know, we, we know that actually, you know, things like isolation and loneliness can, can happen to all different kinds of people. And actually, often um, places like London, which is, you know, where I live, that has a relatively young population, actually really, really high levels of, of loneliness and, and stuff. So actually just there being lots of people around doesn't mean that you don't you don't feel that because it's about your your meaningful connections with with these kinds of kinds of um people you know and again if we you know talk about in these behaviors so exercising and, and things like that right if you have a, a kind of a mental health condition that isn't going to be something that is always going to be accessible to you right again if if literally getting out of bed is a struggle, the idea of putting your trainers on and going for a run is just not even going to be something that's a possibility, right? It's just not, like, you know. And and again, that's why I have, you know, mixed feelings about some of these exercise challenge things that are supposedly in the name of, like, mental health. I don't particularly know names, but there's one going on right now that's about exercising every day in January, supposedly for mental health. And I think, mm, great if if you can do that and you're in a good state of mental health and that supports your well-being but the idea that everyone can do that is just not not the case and also the idea that doing that means that you definitely won't uh, you know but get a mental health condition down the line also not true right you know exercises is a a nice self-care tool to have it's not a treatment and it's not yes it can be preventative in some elements but it's not a foolproof um, kind of thing there. So, um, yeah, I think mental health is hugely, hugely important. And even just not, if we're not talking about just, you know, having a mental health condition, but well-being, right? You know, regardless of whether you have a, a mental health condition, your well-being is is so important, right? I mean, this, you know, this element of the kind of um, sense of coherence, that's that kind of meaningfulness, right? And Angie um, Antonovsky thought that that, element was, was hugely important as well as these kind of generalized resistance resources that, you know these things around you and, and within your yourself but he actually thought that was really really important and, and actually that isn't something that is typically given enough enough kind of credit you know I think we're hearing a little bit more about mental health with people being more open about having mental health conditions but I still don't think it's focused on enough actually and I think there are um you know so many ways that things could be changed that would actually improve people's people's well-being right I mean 
lots of companies, for example, have various like mental health initiatives, right, where they're supposedly doing things like that, but actually improving like working conditions and flexibility and all these things would actually do a lot more to actually improve people's well-being, right? (laughs) So if mental and social well-being are so important, why do people in the medical profession spend so much time focusing on physical health, in particular weight, diet and exercise? I think of two specific people that I think have a lot to do with this, right? One is Ansel Keys, um, and the other, <laughs> and the other is the um, inventor of the. Well, it was originally not called BMI, but um, it was Adolf. I think Ketelet is how you pronounce it. Um, and if you know, if people aren't familiar, I kind of a short history of those two. So you've got Ketelet, who was um, a social scientist. Um, if you look him up, it'll also be described as a mathematician and things like that. I think social scientist is the best way to describe him unfortunately had um, a racist sexist agenda and had this idea that actually by by defining um, the kind of average of a population in all different aspects that was the ideal that everyone should try and emulate right and again this average was was white men because why why consider anyone else right but they're, they're the people that we need to be you know working towards so forget women forget any other minority ethnic groups you know let's just focus on them um and and did this and um again developed this thing called the the Kessel-A index which then later became the, the bmi um and really because of, of, of his role and then that was taken forward by by Ansel Keys, who people may know from the um Minnesota Starvation Study that was published in nineteen fifty, um, which again was actually very useful in, in terms of providing uh evidence for the harms of, of, of dieting and, and actually how difficult it is to recover from that physically and and mentally. Um but his other work, less less helpful, well, was was really really fat phobic in terms of his his beliefs and this this kind of BMI chart and and that really then then came into kind of um, American companies used that as a way to um, determine people's insurance and again if you were this BMI category you were you know charged more than if you were in this BMI category. They arbitrarily changed it as well. So originally, um, quote unquote, overweight was considered a BMI of 27. And then suddenly overnight, they changed it to 25 for no apparent reason. Um, and really, I think then the continued use of, of BMI by both, you know, I think healthcare professionals, but, but also by researchers has kind of then reinforced this idea that actually, you know, health can be boiled down to essentially a body size right and it is true for some conditions yes there are correlations right between having a a, a bigger body and and this but again what is not talked about in that is weight stigma right you know the, the assumption is always oh it's, it's because of the person's body right actually well let's look how society treats fat people and we know badly society tell tells them they're unhealthy that you know there are all different types of, of weight stigma that that people in bigger bodies experience and i say that as you know thin privilege so which means that i don't experience any of that personally but in all sorts of areas we you know employment education you know access to health care right um none of that stuff gets talked about enough right because it's a lot more convenient to kind of blame the individual and then the solution to that oh, is, oh, we get the individual to lose weight, right? Rather than actually addressing the underlying issues, actually. And, and if we address the underlying issues, that would improve health for everyone. But instead, we've kind of boiled it down to this thing because it's simple. And it's, again, it's what we've been told, right? It's, you know, and, and continue to be told, right? This idea of this healthy BMI, right? You know, is is seen as the the pinnacle of health. Like again, speaking about my own experience, one of the um, physical health um, uh, consequences of of my eating disorder was um, my period stopped for um, actually over a decade. And when I went to the the doctors about this, because I was in this this healthy BMI category at that time, I was told, "Don't lose weight, and your period will come back." I thought. Okay, great. So this this focusing on weight again, unhe- you know, unhelpful for everyone and particularly harmful to um, you know, to, to fat people, but actually really, really unhelpful for everyone. Right? It doesn't serve anyone because clearly that that was useless advice for me, right? You know, um, so 
so I, I think it's it's again this this what we're told and what we're continually told just reinforces this idea of what is health and what is you know and, and what is unhealthy right and, and um unfortunately i think things like the, the bmi that again you know had really really problematic and unscientific origins is is now seen as being a, a useful metric that that researchers and, and healthcare professionals can and should use to define people as being healthy or, or unhealthy which i profoundly disagree with so earlier we talked about the potential negative impacts of how our focus or borderline obsession with nutrition and exercise can have a negative impact on health. And Emma gave the example of the recent COVID pandemic. We then went on to talk about the importance of mental health and how our obsession with BMI has impacted modern medicine in such a profound way. Now let's talk about how all these three things combine into a condition that simply doesn't get enough airtime. Eating disorders. In April 2021, the House of Commons Women's Inequalities Committee published a report called Changing the Perfect Picture, an Inquiry into Body Image. It makes for a really interesting read and, among other things, calls for the use of the BMI in determining if an individual's weight is healthy to be scrapped immediately. The committee also concludes that BMI actually contributes to health issues such as eating disorders and people's mental health by disrupting body image and inviting social stigmas. They called for the use of BMI to be stopped and, get this, for the adoption of a health at every size approach which prioritises health lifestyle choices over correcting weights. I have some concerns about the exact wording of this, but All in all, I'm massively impressed so far. So the report branded the government's quote-unquote obesity strategy as dangerous. Dangerous for people with negative body image, which let's face it is a lot of people, potentially triggering eating disorders in the people it is designed to help. They, They talk about the hypocrisy of it. A program to measure and record the weights of primary school children which is what we call the National Child Measurement Programme, was also singled out for being counterproductive and even likely to cause harm. And so the committee called for an independent review of the quote-unquote obesity strategy and for the government to look again at how it collects data on childhood obesity. Again, sorry for the O word, but, you know, I'm I'm reading from a report, so it's difficult to, to blank it out. We should probably almost, like have like one of those beeps that signals that I've sworn. I'm allowed to swear, but not use the O word. Anyway, how did the government respond to this? This this hugely con- sort of damning reports that was massively needed, especially during this time over the COVID pandemic. So what they do, um, unsurprisingly, because it's Boris Johnson, they ignored it and went ahead with their own plans to spend more money on diagnosing and treating quote-unquote obesity by starting the NHS Digital Weight Programme and financially incentivizing GPs to refer their fat patients to this weight management programme. So just do the opposite of what the report suggested. That's what they did. Fantastic. Gotta love our government. So politicians, like a lot of people, are under the impression that eating disorders are rare and therefore not worth much airtime, right? That's what they said in response to this report. It was basically, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, 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 okay, there is a small minority who might suffer, but in general, the public will benefit. Nonsense. That's because most people, including health professionals, know very little about them. So we know that one of the things that going on a diet does is it increases your risk of developing um, an eating disorder, right? We we know that because what we think in terms of eating disorders, yes, there's a genetic component. And if we think about genes being switched on and switched off, getting not enough calories basically is going to turn that gene on, right? If you've got it, that's what we think about eating disorders. There's you know, definitely some more complexity to it, but that's that's what we think. So going on any kind of diet, whatever it is, will it will increase your, your risk of, of doing that. And unfortunately, um, we still have these really um, outdated ideas about who suffers from eating disorders. So particularly anorexia nervosa gets a lot of the piece of the pie, right? And we still think that, okay, anorexia is basically the only one we need to worry about. And that only affects um, people who look thin, right? And so we can tell them when they drop below this BMI, oh, that's anorexia, right? And actually, 
anyone of any body size can suffer with with anorexia um, and we know in fact that the physical health implications are actually the same regardless of your body size in fact i wrote a, a piece um, about this we unfortunately still have a ridiculous name of atypical anorexia to describe people who are not in a thin body that have it which is ridiculous because actually as a percentage it's actually a much larger percentage of people than people who are in thin bodies and have anorexia um, but talking about other um, other eating disorders, which again are actually more so, particularly this this big catch-all category of eating disorder, not otherwise specified, which means you don't uh, neatly fit into the anorexia or kind of a bulimia or a binge eating box. Most people end up there. So actually, there are significant numbers of the people that have eating disorders that would would kind of fall fall into that category. Um, and we, we know, unfortunately, that, that eating disorders are actually on, on the increase. Um, and again, that isn't necessarily only due to more people suffering. I, I um, certainly think that's a component of it. You know, I think as, as dieting has continued to shapeshift, right, again, people are being marketed diets as from all sorts of things, often not being told it's a diet, oh, it's a lifestyle change, it's a whatever you know so i think it com- it's been very very sneaky in, in the way it continues to exist and again we, we know there's a lot of money behind that marketing right but, um but you know i think the other part obviously is is, is awareness right i think we, we do have more awareness of eating disorders so that also does likely feed into that but i don't think awareness is the only reason that we're seeing an increase because i think if we look at the rates of it over a short period of time for example we know that over over sort of the period of that COVID has become more of an issue, actually eating disorders have really, really spiked. But I don't think our awareness of eating disorders has massively spiked in the last two years, right? It's about the same, right? You know, we can agree it's more than 20 years ago, but in the last two years, it hasn't been a massive uptick, right? Um, so so I think actually they, they are really, really on the increase. And again, you know, with with uh, eating disorders, they are really complex to, to treat. And actually the recovery rates of eating disorders are not particularly optimistic, right? Um, we know roughly a third of people will fully recover in the way that that is defined. I would argue some of those would not be people that are uh, in an ideal space, right? They might be still buying into a lot of diet culture stuff, right? They might be suppressing their their weight, not eating enough. They might be in this normal category, but they're still basically you know restricting their food in order to stay at that at that kind of weight but that's seen as fine because you know quote unquote normal bmi tick the other third unfortunately will continue to kind of struggle and then we have this kind of um you know other third who are kind of potentially it's a sort of fluctuating thing so they might have periods where they're kind of in better health and then they might have a like a readmission to, to hospital or to eating disorder outpatient services so the recovery rates are not great i think I mean, and there's a lot we can talk about. I think diet culture undoubtedly plays a huge role in that because we're asking people to recover into a world that has a very distorted relationship with food, where you're told this food is good, this food is bad, where you're told being in a you know a fat body is bad, being in a thin body is good, right? We're told actually, you know what, basically you can be as disordered as you like, as long as you stick in this normal weight category, you're fine. That makes, I think, things very, very difficult. I think there's also things we can say about psychological treatments um, in the UK, and I think in many other countries, the go-to eating disorder treatment is something called CBT, which I think can be helpful for a lot of people, but it's still quite reductionist in its approach and I think for many people is not adequate to make um, a, a kind of recovery into the kind of health um, state that we've been talking about right which is this kind of holistic you know concept of health it might be you know sufficient to have a certain amount of physical health and maybe to be in a better position than you entered eating disorder services but not to be in any kind of ideal or, or optimal um, state. Now, I personally believe that healthism promotes eating disorders beyond just encouraging weight loss, which we already know is an independent risk factor for developing one. There are so many people out there walking around with an undiagnosed ED. And worse still, promoting eating disorders is actually applauded in so many different ways, including within the medical community. Things like um, orthorexia um, like at the moment isn't um, an official kind of clinical diagnosis. It goes in this kind of eating disorder, not, not otherwise specified category or EDNOS, right? But essentially orthorexia, and I think this is something that a lot of people will, um, will recognize, is this kind of obsession with eating 
healthy, quote-unquote, foods, right? And that might be organic, that might be paleo, that might be whatever it is, right? Um, and this belief that, that, that doing so will kind of provide you this uh, privileged state of, of health. And it's uh, really where, where, you know, again, that is a mistaken belief in itself, but, but where it becomes a kind of disorder is when that is then affecting you and your, your well-being kind of day to day right so you might be scared to go out for a meal in a restaurant because it doesn't meet the specific criteria of what you've decided is is kind of healthy it might be that actually when you go food shopping it's really really um you know anxiety provoking for you because you might not be able to get hold of the specific foods that you want to be able to eat right um so it's taking up a lot of your kind of headspace and also there's a lot of admin <laughs> involved with with maintaining it right uh, and that is something that we, we see kind of a, a lot of unfortunately on on social media and you know we, there is a lot of you know research as well behind this and kind of the not only the people who are kind of posting this stuff but the people who are typically engaging with you know these kind of health focused instagrammers we know they're actually really kind of higher rates of of you know these kind of orthorexia type symptoms um, in these kind of in these kind of people and and again, in the, in the kind of fitness industry as well, there's a lot of undiagnosed eating disorders. There's been, you know, a fair amount of research, particularly in the last kind of three to five years on kind of people who are engaged in kind of bodybuilding and physique competitions, right? Which for anyone who's unfamiliar, it's basically starve yourself, uh, wear loads of fake tan, get on stage and be judged for your physique, right? Um, I, um, it's, it's basically what it comes down to. Um, and we know that a lot of the people that are engaging in that not only had a past of having eating disorders, but actually still meet lots and lots of the criteria for having an eating disorder, right? They're presented as being this kind of pinnacle of health and fitness, right? But actually, they have a lot of uh, behaviors that would be considered very, very disordered. They have a very sort of way of thinking about foods they're generally weighing their food they're counting their food that it gives them a lot of stress if they're not able to do those kinds of things you know they're, they're living in a very very kind of calculated way and the other kind of category of people that I think are, are really important to, to talk about who don't sometimes get enough attention I think is this again we, we know on average dieting uh, does not work in terms of either improving health or even achieving weight loss um, for an extended period of time for the vast majority of people exact percentages vary we think between kind of 80 to 95 percent of the time diets fail right but what about this five to if we're being generous 20 percent of people right well you know, research is very interested in these because they are, as um, I think Fiona Willer has uh, called them, statistical unicorns, right? <laughs> these are people who supposedly go against it and researchers, particularly those who are invested in, you know, the quote-unquote obesity epidemic and supposedly solving it, think that well, we've just got to figure out what these people are doing and get everyone to do it, right? And so that we actually have these databases of, of these individuals. So there's one in America that's particularly well-known called the National Weight Control Registry, and I believe these are people who have maintained their weight loss for five years or more. And if you look at these kinds of behaviours, these are behaviours that would very, very clearly be diagnosed as an eating disorder if they were in a thin body, right? And they're in largely I think, the normal quote-unquote BMI categories, right? And these are behaviours like weighing themselves every day, eating the same foods every single day, exercising huge amounts every single day, never deviating from that. So if it's, you know, they're celebrating, I don't know, Christmas or some other kind of, you know, uh, holiday then they're not deviating from that at all they're still sticking to this really rigid restrictive you know diet and kind of you know exercise thing and these people again put on a pedestal right because they're seen as oh these are the people that we should all be aspiring to but actually a lot of those people very very clearly have undiagnosed eating disorders or if not that disordered eating right but again we're putting them on a pedestal because again we've used bmi to define health so lots and lots of undiagnosed eating disorders in that particular group of people as well I don't know about you, but I learned a lot from Emma and I am so grateful that she took the time to join me today. For those who are interested, and why wouldn't you be, she can be found on social media. I'm going to link everything to the show notes, but I'll let her explain in more detail. So yeah, the best place to find me is Instagram, it's where I like to hang out. I'm Emma Fitness PhD um, on Instagram. Um, 
I would like to be Emma Green PhD with that unfortunately it's taken uh, because I don't really talk about fitness but um, yeah I post basically um, little slideshows on on different kind of topics particularly about kind of health all from a kind of um, haze aligned anti-diet perspective Um, I'm always willing to take requests if there's particular topics that you're interested in so you can just shoot me a message if you are Um, and I should also mention as well I'm a part of FPOS which is a um, a great organisation that is fitness professionals against weight stigma um and really what we're trying to do is improve um the kind of inclusiveness particularly weight inclusiveness within the fitness industry because a lot of people either as a participant or actually as a a fitness professional um it's it's not very welcoming right there's a lot of focus on dieting and exercising to change your body shape and we want to you know, support people to exercise if they can and, and want to in, in a way that um, they enjoy and, and suits them without any kind of focus on how they look. And so what we do there is we support fitness professionals um, and provide them with resources because unfortunately this anti-diet approach is still very, very niche within the fitness industry. And people, if they're working in a gym, for example, may be the only person who is taking that approach so we want to kind of be there um as a kind of source of um support for them so we provide kind of practical resources so different kind of workshops i run something called science saturdays where once a month i do a kind of deep dive into a particular topic um and cover the sort of you know what we know about it and the idea of that is not only helping people um improve their knowledge in a particular area but also getting them a bit more comfortable with kind of reading and understanding science because it can really feel like a different language um because of the way that researchers researchers write things so there's there's that in it for me as well um but it's a really really friendly community there's lots of conversations in there so people are talking about oh i've got this issue with a client anyone experienced something similar so um yeah if you are a fitness professional i'd really really encourage you to join it's free to join there are kind of paid options but it's free to just be a part of the community um the website is against um, and you can find the info there also if you just want to find it through my instagram if you click the little link in my bio it will send you there um, but would love to have anyone in it the more the merrier <laughs> thank you once again for joining me today i hope that you've enjoyed this episode next week we're going to be looking a little more at the second law of healthism which is that health is something that we can control do you or do you not agree with the statement find out more when you tune in next time don't forget that there's so many other ways that you can engage with me you can join me on my patreon account if you become a patron you have access to extended versions of this podcast you also get to read my blog entries and find out about all the new and exciting things i have planned a whole week before everyone else gets to Uh, you can join for as little as three pounds a month and there's no difference between the different tiers so however much you can afford to give is most gratefully received it helps me to sustain this podcast to keep going and to support other really important and worthy causes You can also join me on my Facebook group, Friends of the Fat Doctor, and you can join me on social media. I am the Fat Doctor UK on Twitter and Fat Doctor UK on Instagram. I'm also on TikTok for those who like watching me make a fool of myself on videos. I'm continuing to update my website and you'll find a whole host of useful resources there. Also information about the training that I offer and the um, events that I have scheduled. Once every month I host The Waiting Room, which is an opportunity for me to do a deep dive into the research on particular subjects that you request and present them in a weight inclusive way. These are paid for events but I offer a sliding scale for payments and if you find yourself in a position where you really cannot afford them please do get in touch through my website. Finally I am pleased to announce that Health Professionals Against Weight Stigma is taking off and there will be more information to follow. Please join us if you're a health professional and you want to be more weight inclusive we are here for you